Okay. Come on back in, grab a seat. My name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to have you all here with us. I get to give you this news. This is fun news. I'm a grandfather as of a few days ago. Yeah, I know. My son and daughter-in-law had a baby boy uh, on the 12th of April. And so he's, he and mom are doing well. So yeah, I've, and you can ask me what it's like to be a grandfather. I have no clue. We're, in fact, I wasn't even supposed to be here. We were going to go to Alaska, but then just for various reasons, we postponed the trip to Monday. So I'm actually able to be here, which is great. And we're going to go see him on him and the parents on, uh, on Monday. So I want to introduce the fact that we're starting a new series for the next month. And we're doing a series that's called Loose the Chains. And this is really tied as a church. You notice we just heard a little bit earlier about um, Compassion Weekend. And Compassion Weekend is an intentional thing that we do where we, we, we don't do church on Sunday morning because you really want every one of us to invest in the work of compassion and justice in our community around us. So first of all, I just want to encourage you, don't treat that Compassion Weekend as sort of an optional, hey, well, you know, I'm busy with other stuff. It's really an important weekend where we want you to be able to get a chance to engage. And it's all throughout the weekend. So you don't have to be doing everything all the time, but there's stuff on Friday night, there's stuff on Saturday, there's stuff on Sunday, and we want to encourage you to get involved in one of those things at least. And that's because God has a heart for compassion and justice. And that's really what our series is about, is this idea of what does it mean that we as the church are called to be a part of that process in the world. Um, If you remember when Jesus came, he shared a bit about what his focus was, and he talked about his focus being loosing the chains. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, And this is where he's quoting from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was what Jesus described as his ministry, and he's given that to us as the church. And so starting that series, we've asked Gary to come, and Gary Stokes, oh, come on up, Gary. Gary has been part of our church for many years. He was a pastor here for a long time. He now lives in Tucson. But we have uh, invited him to be able to be here in person to share with us. And Gary is a man who's really spent a lot of his life working on compassion and justice. And so Gary is going to be speaking to us in the first in that series. So you want to pray for me? Yeah, let me pray for you. (laughs) (laughs) And all of us? Yes. Yeah. So, Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of Gary, that he has been a part of this community for so many years, and we've learned so much from him. And I just pray that you continue to teach us through him. Lord, that you would empower him as he speaks. Fill him with your words and give us ears to hear what you're saying to each one of us in this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ron. I want to say hi to all the people that are live streaming since I'm normally live streaming and eating oatmeal with berries in it, which became a pattern when we were all live streaming. And uh, I want it. There's the camera. Hi, sweet Susie Stokes. Good to see you, hon. And Rosalva, if you're out on today, too, and all you others. And uh, I want to, I want to, I'm sitting there thinking and just thinking what a wonderful church this is and how blessed we are to be back taking part long distance and how much you guys have been in our hearts uh, ever since we, we moved to do ministry there. And uh, if you're new, this is a wonderful church. Um, you can really thrive here. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. This is a place you can really thrive. Uh, so just consider it, please. And, and uh, so, Lord, just give me your words now and uh, give us your hearts to hear you, uh, that we would pursue you, but pursue you by, by uh, serving people that we have something to give to. 
In Jesus' name, amen. First time I've ever preached with the phone, so that's different. I'm going to be checking uh, basket, NBA basketball playoff scores during the talk. So <laughs> if I fade out, it's, they did what? LeBron did what? We, we moved from here. We're kind of set out by the church in 2001 and took a congregation in Tucson, Arizona, down toward the border. Lovely, wonderful town. And had a church that we had been told was going to be a church of about 100, all small groups, lovely people, pretty much middle, blue collar. We're used to more diverse churches, so we thought we'll work on that when we get there. And people we met there were lovely. But it turned out that the pastor, who'd done nothing bad, had just kind of grown to not like his congregation very much. He wanted a young millennial congregation. And, and they, as one board member put it, you know, I'm a pipe fitter. I'm not a young millennial. You know? So, uh, so uh, a lot of people had left. Well, the tipping point had happened. And if you've ever been in any organization where the tipping point gets tipped in the wrong direction, everybody left. So by the time we got there, our 100-person church was 30, 30 or 40, some still on the way out. And uh, finances were, you know, crashing, and, and uh, it, was, it was difficult. And it was hard to find hope in it the first few weeks. It was just, oh, and there, this got me. There were no small groups. There's a big difference between 100% of your church being in a small group and 0% of your church being in a small group. You statisticians will appreciate that. And uh, so uh, a thing happened right at the start that really helped us so much to, to go. I don't know if we would have lasted without this uh, kind act of the Lord. Our third week, Laura Eliza Garcia came. Laura Eliza was a law student. Cuban-American from Miami, eventually went back when she got her degree, passed the bar. She had seen our sign as she was driving by, and she'd been going to a similar church that was 3,000 people, and she didn't really, she liked the church, but she didn't like being in a huge church. And plus the pastor would pick on Catholics, I don't know why, yeah. <laughs> and she's Catholic. So that was the thing too. So she came and she filled out the Connect card, and I would call people Monday or Tuesday uh, after they filled out a visitor card, always shock them. And they <laughs> called Lauren, she said, I love it. She gave me her background. She said, I'm gonna be coming forever. And I've got two guys that sleep rough, two homeless men that, that sleep in this area south of the football stadium. And I'm gonna bring them next week. So she did, you never know if she'll actually come. She came and she brought uh, Roger and Ernesto I'll never forget it. I preached on the prodigal son that week, and Ernesto is just, it hit him. You know, I think everybody, every homeless person in Tucson within a 10-mile radius got to hear that sermon from Ernesto, and he talked about it for the, uh, years, a decade, until uh, he went to fight a gang war with his gang in L.A., and he asked me to bless him for the gang war. That was new. Um, he brought Roger. He came. He dropped off later on, got back into drugs. And then immediately the word got out. Ernesto had been in Sing Sing and swore he would never sleep under a ceiling again. So he, he slept rough in the wa one of the washes. And he knew everybody. He was like the king of the homeless. And somehow word got out in that network that our Vineyard City Church Tucson welcomed everybody. So immediately we started to get homeless people, especially at that season, youth who were in a drug culture, runaways who'd gotten into the drug culture and Tucson. Later on, it was more veterans who had come back with PTSD and addic some addiction. And, but the homeless people came in, in large numbers. Somehow the word got into the prison system. 
So immediately we started drawing a lot of people who were fresh out of prison their first Sunday out. I hugged one guy the first couple of weeks and he started weeping. And he said, that's the first time in 20 years someone has touched me in a friendly way. He'd been touched violently in prison, of course, but, and uh, just wept. And, and it just became that. The church became crazy diverse and stayed that way the 15 years that we were there. One day I came up and my pastor buddies would talk about how to make the awnings and the fronts of their churches more attractive and the chairs nicer and all these things so people would come. And I told him, you know, I, when I got to church Sunday, we had a little, we're in an old YMCA, kind of dilapidated, and we had wooden, uh, concrete steps, and they were kind of chipping away, and that was the main door to come into church. And so five, there'd always be five or six of our uh, addicts, our alcoholics, sitting on that. I don't know why they always sat right, sat right there. And so you'd get to church, somebody, a couple might be smoking, and walk right into the front door. And one time Bill was there, and Bill was a wild-looking man, very sweet, but hair just going out, beard going out, just really disheveled, uh, very obviously an addict, and he was on the verge of tears and said, what happened, Bill? And he said, well, um, I went to my favorite bar, and I went to my favorite seat, and I sat down, and the bartender came over and said, Bill, you're going to have to leave. You can't stay. You can't, in fact, you can't come back. And uh, am I reverbing out there? Okay, I'll keep talking. I'll let you guys work away at it. And uh, so uh, he, the guy told him, you can't come back, Bill. And he said, what did I do? I just got here. I haven't had a drink or anything. And he, the bartender said, Bill, you scare people away. You're bad for business. I'm so sorry, so I can't have you here. Well, I'm hearing that as white suburban families with 2.5 kids are walking up the steps into a dilapidated building with a disheveled you know, man greeting them and a couple of guys who might be drunk, you know, hey, how you doing? And, and uh, thinking, I don't think we're ever gonna be like a normal church, and I'm not sure we're ever gonna be everybody's cup of tea. But we had a speaker come once, InterVarsity. We had some InterVarsity people that were retired, and they were great. They could get speakers all the time for us. And we got a speaker from Mill Valley, and she came, did a wonderful job, of course, InterVarsity speakers are all wonderful. And uh, the end of it, she said, Gary, we were saying goodbyes, and she said, Gary, you have the most Jesus-y church I've ever seen. And I kind of knew what she meant. I'd, I'd never thought about it that way, but as you looked out into the congregation, white, black, all different skin colors, we would have ethnic conflicts between Apache and Navajo. We were so diverse. I had a Navajo lady come once and say, I hear you have, a, uh, have Navajo in the church, uh, rather a uh, Native American person. She said, I hear you have Navajo. Great, let me take you over and show her. Yamicha connector. She said, oh, I hate Navajo. <laughs> and I said, well, what tribe are you? And she said, I'm Apache. And uh, so she was gone. That was too much for her. I wouldn't know how to fix that. Would you know how to fix that situation? Uh, and I, multi-educational, which is the big one. Churches, even churches like in the Bay Area, maybe very diverse or racially, ethnically, but educationally, economically, not so much. That's kind of the last thing, the last hurdle that not many churches are able to break through. And we hadn't done anything. Pastors would say, how'd you do it? I said, well, I didn't do it. All these homeless people showed up. Well, what kind of homeless ministry did you have? And I'm like, well, you don't have a homeless ministry when half your church is homeless. That's ridiculous. I guess we could have done homeless people retreats and, you know, but that would have, that, I don't think they would have liked that. And uh, so, the heart of God toward the poor, 
the God, God's compassionate heart, the core of the gospel, the compassionate heart of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, who lived and died and rose again for us. And uh, Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 3, it's a complicated passage, so a little bit of this may get convoluted, sorry about that, but I'm going to try my best. And uh, so... Okay, so I got to dial in my password, which means I have to remember my password. That's two steps right there. And uh, so shout it aloud. Do not hold back. God is speaking to Isaiah the prophet. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Okay. God speaks to Isaiah, and this is not Isaiah's last uh, first rodeo as a prophet, as you could guess, because this is chapter 58. So he's given a whole lot of prophecies over the years. And, caught a lot of flack for a lot of them. And so God says, I got a new thing for you to say. Isaiah, okay, Lord, what is it? I want you to raise a ruckus this time, son. I want you to open your mouth and shout as loud as you can and keep on shouting, oh joy. Shouting like we translate a trumpet or a bugle, but it's a shofar, which some of you may know from Passover services. Big ram's horn, you blow into it. It's like a zarzuela. Is that the name? A zarzuela for a British soccer game? Anyway. Loud. It's very loud. And he says, do that. Talk like that. And, and this is what you say, starting with these three verses. I got something I want my people to know, and uh, you're my messenger for it. Declare to my people that they are in rebellion. They're in sin against me. They're doing wrong. They're acting wickedly. They're not doing things the way I want. They're sinning against me, God says to him. Now, it's a weird situation, isn't it? You see, it gets tricky right away because he says, he says to them, you know, they think they're doing well. God says, I'm not happy and tell them, but it's going to be tricky because they think they're doing really well. They seek me out. They're eager to know my ways. They think they are a righteous nation. They think they're the keepers of my commands and covenants. They are eager to come near me. That doesn't sound wicked, doesn't sound terrible, it sounds great, doesn't it? And he says on top of it, they fast. And boy, here's how they fast. And the fast sounds pretty good too. And yet, at the end of it, they turn to God, this righteous, eager to know God people, and say, hey, what's wrong with you, God? We're doing a lot of work here. Here's the list of our good deeds, our pious deeds, our religious deeds, many of which are encouraged in Scripture. I mean, Jesus fasted 40 days at the start of his ministry. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you fast, do it this way, not that way. So they're doing all these things that look really good. And the result is they're not pleasing God. They have a blind spot. They do get the first great commandment in the Old Testament, I think, even what Jesus and the Jews in his period you know, talk about it as in the New Testament. They do get Deuteronomy 6, you know, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Jesus will later add in all your mind to that. They have a comfort zone, and it's a religious comfort zone. 
And in many ways, it's, it's right. You know, they're really seeking in the best they know how. They're really seeking to please God. They're seeking to love God with all their heart and soul and mind. Maybe. They think. They must think that. But they have a blind spot. And they are driving God crazy. They're seeking God. They're doing the commandments. They're fasting. They're wanting to know him. Is driving God crazy. It's a little shocking, isn't it? 1974, I can explain what's going on by a reference to music from my time. I think you'll find that your favorite music when you're 18 will answer all your questions in life until you die. <laughs> and it actually, you'll find out it wasn't even that good, but that's a different topic. In 1974, I'd been a believer one year, great year, Jim Stafford, who I, I didn't even know that was who did it, I don't know who he is, wrote a song that still gets played, I don't know why. It's the ode of a young, about a young boy, apparently in a bayou, who, who uh, loves a young girl. And so he wants to impress her, so he catches a toad and gives it to her. So, young, young boys. I understand that coming from Indiana. Go get a, you know, crayfish or a tadpole or a frog or something, you know, and give it to the girl. And so the song goes, she sings something back to him. She says, I don't like spiders and snakes, and that ain't what it makes, takes to love me like I want to be loved by you. Well, they're giving God what they think is gold and ivory and ebony gifts, but to God, it's just spiders and snakes. Why isn't their seeking and why isn't their fasting pleasing God? Back to verse 3 through verse 5. Oh, not the password again. Do you guys have to go through this every time you read a Bible on your phone? The password. It's going to ask me for my email and username soon. Your fasting ends, well, back to the last half of verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Isn't this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And isn't you th that's a trick question. It sounds like a trick question, doesn't it? You'd think that they think, yes, of course that's a fast that you want. But it turns out the answer is no. Once again, God says, and Isaiah, tell them this confusing thing. All these things that sound so good, I got my head noise-canceling headphones on. I don't want spiders and snakes. I don't want to hear it. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear it. Don't do it. Stop. Big stop sign from God. Because in the day that they fast and they seek and all these things, they exploit their workers. Literally, they, they oppress their toilers. I love that, the original, the toilers, the people around them who toil. They oppress those people and they drive them, work them hard. He says, you make the people around you, the people you have power over, the people you're wealthier than, more educated than, you have more social status than them, you make the life harder for those people. You could make a difference, but you don't. You go and fast instead of helping break somebody's chains who's desperately in need of it. You end up making life harder for everybody who you could bless. And it's helpful. I used to be a banker long ago, and I, I realized, you know, from sermons at church and all, I realized I needed to take inventory. 
and think, okay, who here should I be serving? Because it's super competitive, you only talk to the people that you're, you know, competitors and boss and, and so on. And all at the same time were these people. It was like, there are people here, and they're not other banker, lender guys or my boss. They're, they're cleaning, ticking up the trash. They're running the receptionist desk. They're sending out the money to companies, actually the ones who send out the wire transfers and all. They're all these folks, the human resources person in our office, and they, these people all serve me. And nobody talks to them. I mean, they talk to each other probably about the bankers, and, uh, but they, they, nobody talks to them. It's like they're not there. But yet we wouldn't be able to do our job at all unless we had these folks. I didn't even get a computer until last year I was a banker. It was not this common then. But, but, uh, and I, email was invented while I was, the last year I was a banker, developed or whatever. Michael Toy and all those guys did, did email and it happened. And uh, I, she, wouldn't, she would copy my emails because she knew I didn't have time to or didn't know how to and it would take forever. So she would bring me, she would walk in with my printed emails. Those were the days. That ended when I went to work for a church. And uh, so these folks serve us, but it's like God's saying, but you don't bless them. But yet you fast and you, you bow down and have sackcloth and ashes and you think you're doing great. Stop it. I can't stand it, God says to them. I can't take it. I know you're trying to do the first great commandment, but stop it. The people that we could bless, that we have some power over, maybe it's our spouse, maybe it's our kids, maybe it might be neighbors, maybe it's a reception. I know you all don't work in physical offices, but um, the, the uh, receptionist at the office, the, there's got to be a cleaning person if there's an office that comes in, you know, at 2 in the morning or whatever. We had mysterious Polish cleaning ladies, and if you worked long enough, the mysterious Polish cleaning lady would show up, and they were really fun. They were chatty, and, and, uh, but nobody noticed them. They were invisible people to us. You've got the, if, you, if we go to a restaurant, there's the dishwasher, and there's our waiter or a waitress, right? And there's the receptionist, and, and on and on, and, and the cleaning person that comes to clean our house, or the people that come, everybody in Tucson has yard services because they all, everything bites in Tucson, has, you know, stingers on it three inches long and beautiful. Um, so many people that make, so many people that make this happen. So many people that make this happen for us here and in Tucson and everywhere. My daughter went to Montaloma. Any Montaloma parents here? We used to have a bunch. Uh, she went to Montaloma and there was a parents picnic. Nice. Meeting the parents, you know, schmoozing. Talked to one guy, and he's telling me at length, he was a long talker, he was telling me at length what a good boss he is and how, therefore, how much his people really, really love him. Okay, he seemed kind of braggity, so I, I kind of threw me, but not five minutes later, I meet somebody there, and they said, yeah, I, I, I work for him. He had a team. He said, he's horrible. He's by far the worst boss I've ever had. He's a terrible boss. He so, treats us so badly. God's people, seeking God while making life worse for everyone around us, at least everyone who's beneath us in our worldly sense. It's so tempting to do that, isn't it? Especially the invisible part, not noticing. I had a homeless guy tell me the hardest part is nobody looks at me. No, and I understand they might solicit you, it might be scary, but he says, nobody looks at me. They all avert their gaze. It's as if I'm not here. So God says, stop, 
you've got to have another thing going on too if I'm going to listen to you. And it's the second great commandment in the Old Testament and quoted by Jesus and others in the New. And it's the Leviticus 19.14 passage, love your neighbor as yourself. Embedded in that whole book of laws about dietary things, and etc., is that love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, not or. We can't skip one and do the other. We can't forget about God and claim to be serving the poor in Jesus' name. We can't forget about the poor and other folks that are on the fringe who, and claim that we're loving God because we're doing all these religious acts, and they don't get that. And that can escalate. You notice it escalates quickly in this passage. Next thing you know, they're argumentative and they're loud and they're arrogant and they're loud and they're argumentative and they're arrogant and they, they get angry at each other and they don't agree with them and they get loud and have disagreements about things and, and they quarrel and they have strife and they have wicked fists. Yeah, I knew a couple of bankers that had fist fights. They have wicked fin- fists and they even get in fist fights with each other. These are, in other words, angry religious people who get loud and pushy toward people that don't disagree with them. Angry religious people. Boy, if you could box that and sell it in the U.S., we'd pave the streets with gold, wouldn't we, with the money we got from angry religious people. We are in the era, and I've seen angry religious people a long time, longer than most of you, but boy, we never had angry religious people in this country like we have angry religious people now. If you got a sense of that, I think we all do. It's remarkable. It's terrible. As I've told my congregation a few years ago, it's Pandora's box being opened and the worst coming out from from Christians in our culture. He says, what you're used to is a fast day where you humble yourselves and you bow down and you mourn. Is that what you call a fast? Trick question. A day acceptable to the Lord? Trick question. You can't fast as you do today and expect to your your voices to be heard on high, and boom. I won't listen. Stop, sign. Stop, he says to them. Freeze in your tracks. No more fasting yet. No more any, don't even pray yet. Just sit and listen and be changed by the word of the Lord. So stop that way of living. Seek the way I want to be pleased, God says to them. Don't just look at some commands and ignore others and get all lopsided and out of sync like you've done. Let's think about what would please God. He doesn't want spiders and snakes. That's not what it takes to love him like he wants to be loved by us. So they better take a minute, I think, Isaiah is to tell them. We better take a minute and think. We better take a minute and look into our hearts honestly. We better take a minute and take a breath and see what God might want from us and what, what in the world do these these wild words, you know, mean. Verses 6 and 7. It's not actually my password. It's the four-digit passcode. I feel like I've complained too much, so sorry about that, Lord. But it's still four digits. That's a lot, right? You get one wrong, there's trouble. Have you noticed that? Just one, 25%. You can't get in your phone. Okay, verse 6. Isn't this the kind of fast I've chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Isn't it to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God says, 
start. Isaiah says, the Lord tells me now that we've stopped and thought a bit. Let's start. We're not going to stay stopped. We're not going to stay frozen. We're going to ask God to forgive us, and then we're going to start. But we're going to start the way God wants so we can make God happy. We need to loose the chains of injustice. We need to untie the cords that tie a yoke on to us. We need to set the oppressed free. We need to break every yoke. I do want to mention, even though, of course, it's not in the passage, which is centuries before Jesus' coming, but, you know, Jesus says, come to me, everybody who, heavy la who labors and, you know, is weary and take my yoke upon you. And I can recommend that once Jesus breaks a yoke in our lives, the best way to keep that victory is to put Jesus' yoke on because you can't wear two yokes, right? That's really the thing, I think. Break the yoke of the world and of my sin and then slap, get Jesus to slap his on there immediately before anybody can get to me and I can start sinning again. Every chain, every yoke, every hungry person set everybody free. Now let's start. Share your food with the hungry. Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. Clothe the naked. Help everyone we can, whenever we can, however we can. If we have more, we give and have a bit less. If we get an opportunity, we take it, which can be very frightening. You've probably tried this before, listening to the Lord, getting a sense of something God wants you to do to help someone down and out in need and how frightening it can be. It's frightening even just, you know, to go to Caltega and be part of a team and hand out food, how much more frightening in daily life. And God says, let's start doing that. Help anyone you can. We had a woman in the church. Her husband was in, uh, in prison in Oregon for six months, and he had committed crimes in like four or five states. And so you had to clear this state, and then they would allow you to clear The next Idaho would let you clear. Once Oregon cleared you, Idaho would let you go, and then maybe Wyoming would give you a month in prison and so on, and then you could be a cross-country truck driver and feed your family like was what he needed to do. And there was a women's coffee, you know, get together. And she said, oh, I can't go, Pastor. I asked her. She said, I can't go. Why? And she, she's new as you. I said, well, how come? And she said, I, don't, I can't afford a coffee. I don't have a dollar. I'll never forget that. I don't have a dollar. We opened a food pantry that served about 250 people a month um, for several years in conjunction with the community food bank. And um, they told us when they trained us, out of the million people roughly that live in the the greater Tucson area, they said 200,000 a year come to the community food bank for food. 200,000, 200,000. Not just the, the working poor, people who've run out of food on the by the 27th and 28th, we were getting a ton of people because they'd run out till their paycheck on the first. We had a woman come once and uh, to church, this happened all the time, and she said, you know, I, I'm like, so, uh, hi, I'm, I'm Gary, and she's, and she, it's, my, it's her first Sunday. Oh, great, how'd you hear about us? Came to get food. But it was weird because when I went, came in, I looked in the food pantry through the glass windows, and there were all these people, you know, kind of raggedy-looking people, and I thought, oh, they have clients, you know, in there, and it's full. So this one guy, Greg, super, super chatty, friendly, you know, good guy, 
He starts talking to her, and 15 minutes later, she's lost track of time. She looks in, and there's still raggedy people in there. And she says, well, i got to get going. And when are there going to be room for me in there? And, and Greg's like, well, what are you talking about? You could go in there. And she says, well, all those clients, they won't leave. And he said, that's not the clients. That's our church serving. That was the people that worked there because the people that were homeless figured out they couldn't give much money, but, boy, they could run the food pantry. And they could handle some fundraising things that we did. And we made, I mean, really a third of our budget was free labor from, you know, low-income folks who just volunteered for everything. We had a lady come to the office once, Kelly and I. She was our office manager over there. And the lady opened the front door and the screen, and she knocked on the door real feebly and then practically fell in. Kelly had to catch her. And she, we got her on the couch. We got her hydrated, and uh, she was just about to pass out. And then she told us her story, and she had run out of money completely, and I don't remember the circumstances. Um, we, she had run out of money totally, and she went to a Safeway, and she started begging. And she asked this one guy, and he said, I'll give you 35 bucks if you'll have sex with me behind the Safeway. Sorry for the dark thing, but that's, the life, that's life out there. If we're going to go out there, make God happy, that, a lot of it is that kind of stuff. And uh, so we got her set up. We gave her money. We... We found, Kelly found a place that gave shoes of all sorts, including work shoes for, you know, interviews. Uh, so we got that set up for her. We got some clothes for her, various things. She called a couple weeks later, and she said, I just want to tell you guys, I, I'm so happy. I really, you guys mean so much to me, you know. You, my life turned around. She said, I got a job, and I'm standing in the line at McDonald's, and I have so much money, I can order whatever I want. There's that world out there. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's around, you know, around us here too, but invisible, more invisible here than the Bay Area hides the poor better than other places, right? Don't just turn away from your own flesh either. Well, that's a different story. I've got great. Susie's family is awesome. It is. My family, mm, more, more complicated something I don't know what to do with. Verses 8 and 9, grand finale. Oh, I typed one thing wrong. We were almost done early. <laughs> then, your light, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk. Helping people as we can, when we can, wherever we can, however God leads us. They thought that they could choose the commands to follow. They thought they could get away with religious ceremony, maybe from the heart, and that they could stuff the box that they lived in. If you picture your life like a box, they could stuff that religious stuff in the box. And they could invite some other religious people into the box for dinner and, you know, so on. They had their family in the box. It was a big box. And, and it was a comfort zone, too. I went with the other metaphor. But it was limited, so I have to cross over. It was a comfort zone for them, that box that they lived in. Very comfortable for them. They could choose who they would have in their box, they could choose who they would acknowledge, who they would see, who they would be nice to, who they would recognize, who they would help, who they would have over for dinner, who they would see at church. It was a comfort zone for those people. 
But God says, you're going to have to let the homeless and the helpless, the naked, the poor, the person without a place to live, going to have to, you know, I'm going to have people knock on the door of your box, God says to us. You're going to have to let them in too. Are we willing is the question for those folks and of course for us folks too. Are we willing to let those folks into our life? If God chooses, eventually as we follow Jesus, the thing I've learned is that God just removes the box. Have you had that happen? People will say, How, is, isn't that out of your comfort? We went to Sri Lanka again in January, one of the ministries you guys help support. And we went to, you know, 20, uh, 48 hours, 48 hour trip. I'm not young, bad back, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we go and I had all these guys at coffee shops my age who want to yak because I would do all my writing in coffee shops. And they're all like, I can't believe you're going to Sri Lanka. That's crazy. I could never do that. I would never do that. And I'm like, Is that, isn't that kind of out of your comfort zone? And I'm like, I don't know if it's out of my comfort zone because I lost my comfort zone. I don't remember what decade, not what year. I don't remember what decade Jesus stole my comfort zone. But, but if we walk with the Lord, we lose. We don't just expand our comfort zone. We lose our comfort zone. We can't believe the things God has us do and how wonderful they are and how many people they bless and how much better we get to know him in the process. That's when God's light shines on us. And you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. Things that can be done. I'm not the expert because I don't physically you know, live here normally. But uh, the partners that were so wonderfully shared about a few minutes ago, the three partnerships, the Buena Vista, Reach, Potential, and what's Bayshore called now? Horizon. Is it Horizon? Oh, Horizon. Okay. Those ministries, the big three partnerships, there are places that where we do those things. The church will announce events if you want to do it together with other people. Caltego was together yesterday, and, and uh, the other 18 partners, including... Sri Lanka, Julie Dottie's not, Julie Young's not in the room because she's with the kids, but she went with us. The Sri Lankans were like, what did you like about the trip best? We liked being together at the retreat, all of our churches. We loved it. The women got to joking at three in the morning. They put their kids down. The drum, young guys drummed at drum circles in the jungle. The moms got their kids down, came back at two in the morning and started telling stories. Some had not even seen each other since COVID. And then they started running around locking each other out of their rooms and giggling and came back. So that was, that was nice. Um, and we love Julie. We really love Julie. And they, they're a little more serious sometimes. And they do have great kids' church. But it's kind of serious, singing and scripture and great. Julie does games. Julie really, if you ever want games, talk to Julie. She's the game master. And uh, she uh, had, took like six or nine games or whatever and kept adding them. And the kids loved them. And they got their scripture and worship in too. And Pastor Ganesh said, we learned a lot from now on. We are going to seek to make a happy moment for our children on Sundays. Isn't that sweet? They loved, really loved Julie. We could send her and not go. They'd be, they'd be fine, I imagine. <laughs> and to seek to notice. This is, my last, this is my last thing on this list. If you, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you two prayers that I think are almost guaranteed to be answered in my experience. One is to pray for patience. And what I've learned is, don't. It's a foolish person that prays for patience, in my experience. God will give us enough patience in our lives. The world out there is full of opportunities to grow in patience. Don't pray for it. Your car will get hit. Your dog will run away. You know, whatever. 
uh, your wife will get a crush on Brad Pitt died in happen. That's a bad analogy anyway. Um, but something will happen. But the other one, Lord, who's somebody I can help today? That's always answered in my experience. God brings somebody to my mind. It could be as simple if I'm depressed that day, which I sometimes am. It could be as simple as just sending a one-sentence text, hey, thinking of you, how you doing? It could be to call or email or, you know, whatever, get together. It could be to notice a person who's in need and see if there's some way to help, to give a few bucks to somebody who, who needs money. And a lot of you wisely to sit down or take them to lunch or whatever, take them somewhere where they can get a meal. But the thing is, we have the Holy Spirit, right? When we receive the Lord, he fills us with his Holy Spirit, which means the life of Jesus, which means we are walking with Jesus every day. That's the central fact of Christian faith to me. When I get up in the morning, I had a guy from the church ask me once, how would you summarize it in one sentence off the top of your head? I said, Jesus is always up to something and we get to join him. Jesus is always up to something. We walk down the street, he is up to something around us. We're in a coffee shop, somebody, Jesus is up to something and somebody there needs somebody who represents Jesus. We're like little chaplains all over the place, everywhere we go. And if God nudges us, if God moves us, if an opportunity comes up, we go. And it's hard. And it's scary. And it doesn't always work. And it takes us out screaming and kicking from our comfort zone. And then it happens, and it happens, and it happens. And we start to experience Jesus more. And we grow, and it happens, and tough things happen. And we grow, and something big happens. And we grow and grow and grow. This passage, in many ways, Isaiah 58, is one of the summaries, pictures, photographs we could put up on a wall and say that's a picture of the life with Jesus. And so let's join that. Lord, just please move us into the life of Jesus. Grant us to take whatever you want to speak to us in this season today, you know, right now, through the day of the week. And Lord, I want to ask that you break the chains off of us too that we would be free to step toward the person we can bless, that we would be free to step toward the person that we are being touched by you about, and that we could go out there and we'd go there to be you, be with you right by your side, our hand in yours, and work with you in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask whoever is doing the closing ministry time, prayer, stuff, Whatever happens now, does anybody have, know what happens now, Ron? What happens now? You coming up too? Susan, you coming up too, Susan? Okay, song first. What about the hand signal? I got an email about some hand signal. Like this and then that and then this hand signal. Okay. okay. It sounded fun. I'll do this one.